Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it is That Weems Guy here once again for First Person Safety. Uh, before we get started tonight, I want to clarify something from last week's episode with David Cagle. I misspoke. I know that Mike Wadelich was with the Bakersfield Police Department, and for some reason, I did another B California City and said Burbank. I was quickly uh, assaulted with text messages from Mr. Bulky and Mr. Galehouse. No, 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 it was Bakersfield, and I knew that because I had the Bakersfield qualifications where I first saw his name. Um, so here tonight to speak on all things modern technique spreading throughout the West Coast is Mr. Daryl Bulky. And I asked Daryl to come on because I thought it would be a great follow-up to last week's episode with David Cagle, where we talked about his dive into the modern technique as part of his historical journey through firearms. And um, so on that note, David's episode is currently the number one downloaded podcast version of the show so far and uh i joked about the revenue last week so i'm gonna tell you i checked the numbers just just a moment ago before we went on air and nine dollars and 24 cents now people so pretty soon i'll be able to buy a hamburger mill somewhere and uh with that i'm going to ask daryl bulky to introduce himself i'm daryl bulky i'm retired out of uh police department ontario police department southern california uh been a in the firearms industry since 19 about 86 ish uh, and then started my law enforcement career january of 88 with uh, ontario i retired from there uh due to injuries in 2006 ish seven something like that uh moved to texas uh do a bunch of firearms training i've been around a lot of people a lot of classes um and uh, yeah, working a lot of private sector stuff as well. So I, I have a pretty diverse career when I was at the department, uh, trained our SWAT team uh, as assigned to a firearms instructor for SWAT. In the end of 1989, I went out to a deep platoon with Larry Mudgett and cut my teeth with them out there where I was kind of dipped hard into the uh, modern technique of the pistol by Larry. Uh, trained a lot under uh, Mike Harry's uh, same group of people. So while I had never, I had a lieutenant who crushed my dreams of going to gunsight multiple times. Um, the I ended up uh, training with a lot of the gunsight people uh, in Southern California from various organizations, and have a pretty good insight of how that dispersed rather than talking from the truly gunsight side of the house i can talk from how the modern technique dispersed into uh law enforcement out there and very 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 successfully and i have a lot of history and background with it just from the people i was around uh during my mentoring phase uh, cool um for our audience, I strongly encourage you to go to Scotty Reitz's webpage. It's, it's uh, ITTS 
uh, is the name of his company. So just Google Scotty Reitz, ITTS, you'll get to his webpage and then go up under the media tab and there's a link to his podcast. And the last two episodes was a two-part interview series that he did with John Helms. And folks, it is solid firearms training gold. So go listen to those two episodes. And, you know, those two guys talked about how when they went to Gunsight and then went back and how they kind of permeated throughout the, the LAPD, um, Daryl's the one guy I know from that whole mix personally. That, so that's why I asked him to come on tonight. And he's going to just kind of explain to us how that all went about and how it spread through, you know, the LAPD and then through the outlining areas. But I also want to talk about, you know, the guys like Mike Wadelich who were already at Gunsight teaching when the LAPD guys showed up. And so we need to give those guys credit as well. I was not mm-hmm. familiar with Mike Wadelich until probably a month or so ago. Um, and then all of a sudden in one week, he came up on two different reference points. You know, Greg Elephant wrote an article on reference team and then Gary Greco sent me an email with a document he was working on and he referenced mm-hmm. him. And I'm like, wow, there's gotta be something to this guy mm-hmm. for these two guys. And so, you know, what you know of that, I would like for you to relay that to our audience about how all of that transpired because you know, the people that are paying attention to the show are deep divers. And so I think they're really going to enjoy that. So if you want to kind of start wherever you want to as to how all it began. Yeah, uh, so. you know, a lot of that began kind of almost how I began. Um, what you had, it, it really kind of came out of uh, the competitive shooting world, believe it or not. Um, the uh, A lot of those guys know what you have to kind of realize about Gunsight and where it kind of evolved from out of the Big Bear leather slap matches and all of that. All of that came out of Southern California. And, you know, while they don't get the rep as the gun place now, they certainly have a have a deep, deep history in firearms uh, and firearms usage uh, defensively and in law enforcement is is is, you know, they've always had big, busy metropolitan police departments and stuff and generally tended to be sort of cutting edge, starting with LAPD in the 30s on professionalism and how important uh shooting was as part of that equation so those guys so when when you had gunsight kind of spinning up in the mid 70s and then you had the original ipsc you know the um the original practical shooting competitive world came out of there as well and so a lot of those guys who were heavy into the both the gunsight world and the shooting competitively world, they actually kind of worked coincided with each other in the early years. There was very much gunsight doctrine stuff. Um, keep in mind, we were working uh, in those days, those guys were working off of stopwatches uh-huh. and they did not have the type of timing equipment we have now. So the matches were set up. They were actually fairly practical as far as they were long phases of fire, uh, famous pictures of Ray Chapman hurtling walls, guys hanging off of ropes on stuff. Um, Because when you're running a stopwatch, you know, phases that are 20 seconds are easier to time than the stuff we're doing now. Um, Because a lot of that was dictated by who, how fast guys were on the 
turning the stopwatch on and turning the stopwatch off. There was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, error in that factored into it. So most of the stuff was longer or it was very much a lot of man on man type shooting against steel. Uh, so you, you had kind of a different world back then. The other thing about gunsight, it was drivable in a day from California. So a lot of the guys who were the very serious shooters back then could get to gunsight, which made them a lot of the instructors, uh, early adopters. So a lot of the early sort of competitive guys, a lot of the early gunsight guys, they were within a drive of gunsight. And it sort of permeated through California, mainly through the Southwest Pistol League. Uh, that was a pretty heavy organization on shooting. And then ev everybody who was a serious shooter, that's sort of what they did. And you had a big, and, and, and I kind of looking back, I think you can kind of almost attribute it to timers. Uh, when we started first seeing the club timers coming out, you had a massive split occur in the 80s between what we would call today the gamers and sort of the truly practical shooters of the era and a lot of the the, the very heavyweight practical shooters a lot of them were vietnam era vets they had you know guys like mudget you know uh, a lot of these guys had seen extensive combat overseas they uh, were trained in a gun site um they realized uh, that their training that they were receiving, whether it was in the military law enforcement, was not in line with what they were seeing, what, with what they were doing at gunsight and actually pressure testing in a competitive environment with their systems that they realized that there's a much better way to do things. Well, like anything, as soon as you make a sport out of it, it becomes sort of a whole new world. And the, be the beauty of the gaming part is that the technological developments and the gear developments are huge. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's automotive racing or shooting. Um, that stuff all filters back, and it's a great place for that. You know, the problem comes in when you started seeing, and I, I'm going to say that two of the big names that, that keep coming up over and over, and I remember them from my growing up sort of in that era in the 80s, was uh, Mickey Fowler and Mike Dalton were sort of the beginning of the serious, serious gamers. If you look at the books they used to write on, you know, defensive shooting, and I forget some of the titles, but they were like, you know, you know, Life Without Fear or something, you know, type of books for people on defensive shooting. But you go go look at their bios. They're professional shooters. Yeah. They were the first era. These guys were the first era of professional shooters. Um, sort of one of the things that, that uh, I heard from one of the older, older level competitors who had been around that their whole life. And they're very much on the super gamer side of things said, you know, back in those days, before sponsorships and a lot of this stuff, the <laughs> The, uh, it tended to be the guys who were the IPSC champions were the richest guys out there uh -huh. because they could afford to shoot and train or shoot and practice right. uh, before you had, you know, you know, 
ammo company is dropping sponsored ammo on you know and you could make a living as a shooter so some of these were the first people actually making a living as shooters and you had sort of a big fissure split sort of in that era and two guys in particular in southern california come up as some of the first split which was mike horn and mike widely and those guys so uh Wadelick was the uh was fires instructor at bakersfield pd uh horn was uh if i remember right he was a fireman for kern county fire which is where bakersfield is located okay. you had bill jeans up in clovis uh fresno county just north of them and then all up those corridors what you had were the serious firearms instructors for a lot of police agencies of these sort of like 100 to 200 man you know good moderate sized california departments were going to gun site getting their doctrine bringing it back and had the power to install that into their agencies at a time when crime was rampant officer involved shootings were off the hook you really had a great laboratory for it and the biggest thing they brought back from gunsight was putting the gun in the eye line in a flash front sight picture period um you know i uh i talked to and I can only say his name a couple times because we have a new thing that anytime Gelhouse's name is mentioned, <laughs> you have to take a drink. So I don't <laughs> want anybody to get too inebriated. So I'll keep it limited. I was, talk, I was talking to Gelhouse and he goes, yeah, mm -hmm. somebody said, you know, they're trying yeah. to attribute the quote. I go, but dude, it was me. I'm the one who said, you know, the whole thing with Weaver was yeah. it wasn't the stance. It was he was the first guy bringing the gun up to the eye line. Yep. And because he was shooting a K-38 Smith & Wesson with fantastic sights, and everybody else's gun had garbage sights on him back then, you know, whether it was the single-action armies or the single-action Colt 1911s. You know, he's shooting a gun with target sights on it. If you can figure out a way to use those things fast, that was the biggie. So between that, bringing out um, isometric tension-based shooting, um the weaver again is not really a stance it is a combination everybody gets so wrapped around the axle that you got to stand like cooper uh -huh. that's not really what weaver is weaver is isometric tension based in the hands of how you're gripping and control and recoil and presentation of the firearm into the eye line the only difference between that and iso is iso is using muscle skeletal Weavers use an isometric. I mean, there's not a huge difference. It's sort of how you're gripping things. Right. And, you know, every, so you start factoring that in that what these guys did is they came back to their agencies going, hey, we figured out how to shoot real well. And what they were doing is crushing point shooting, which was still heavily FBI driven. Uh -huh. And because which came out of Jelly Bryce, who was a freak of nature and could see bullets in flight, you know, and we based, you know, 70 years of police training on that. And so we were talking earlier about, you know, where these guys had enough control of the size of their agency's firearm program to 
basically go, we're not point shooting anymore. We're doing this. And seeing immediate, massive, huge positive results from that, where all of a sudden they're actually hitting people fast, regularly, consistently. And what happened is the large agencies were still clinging to point shooting the big giant agencies because their administration, you know, it's a big deal when you're a captain or above, you know, executive level law enforcement to go to the FBI national Academy that, you know, the bunch of ring knockers on that, that's a whole cult on its own among. And so those guys from these major departments, that was always a big deal to them. So there was still a huge, heavy influence from the FBI and the point shooting. They, I mean, into the 80s, they had the mirrors and everything. I talked to Greg today, and he goes, oh, yeah, well, into the 80s, they had the mirrors at FBI to practice your Jelly Bryce uh, you know, point shooting stuff. When I went to the academy at San Bernardino County Sheriff's in 1988, um, I had San Bernardino County Sheriff's staff, firearms instructors, and an FBI agent out there were our firearms instructors. I was chastised and, you know, cause I was already kind of up on the modern technique cause I was shooting competitively before that, you know, first rounds we fired first six rounds at, at like, you know, three yards or something. Yeah. I came up, you know, drove the front side on, put six rounds near touch and dead center of the target. And when I thought the instructor was running down to congratulate me for shooting faster and better than everybody else, he was screaming at me that I was cheating. Yep. You know, um, because I was using my sights. I had had an instructor in the academy that told a very similar story. Right. And Pat Rogers had the same thing, all these guys. So I ended up, we couldn't use sights. We couldn't bring the gun into the eye line till after seven yards. And we wondered why we weren't hitting anybody in three and four, five yard gunfights. Well, that's why. So you had this whole that was the breaking point of what happened in, in kind of California was a lot of these firearms instructors, because, you know, they shot competitively for hobbies in, you know, Southwest pistol league, whatever. And then you had a big break and a lot of the real practice, seriously practical guys. And what I call them, the armed professionals, the ones who were carrying a gun for a living, doing this seriously. And they were working at places like Bakersfield that were busy and shooting a lot of people, uh, LAPD Metro. Now see LAPD Metro, LAPD as a whole did not embrace this until Mudget went to firearms after SWAT. Initially, Mudget, Helms, Reitz, all those guys were working inside Metropolitan Division and D-Platoon in particular. That is the size of a solid medium-sized Metropolitan Police Department by itself in California standards. So, and they get in a lot of shootings. Um, There's a reason that they call Metropolitan Division the gunfighters. That's what they are known for. They work when they're not doing the SWAT stuff and all this other stuff, they were crime suppression. Mm-hmm. They put them in places where there's a ton of crime. So all of these places were getting to test this stuff in the field of these firearms instructors and gun guys kind of coming back from whether it was Gunsight or Southwest Pistol League or all the kind of IPSC initial Gunsight sort of stuff of basically shooting isometric tension, bringing the gun into the eye line. And then with the safety rules, there's a lot of stuff that sort of came into this that was new. 
and they were get, getting huge successes. You know, another name, uh, Dean Caputo, who was on my tour with David uh, out at Arcadia. Um, you had a lot of serious, serious shooters. And then you had sort of this break. And the break went between the gamers, who it was all about the timer and scores, and the gear to support that. And you had these folks who were deep in police agencies that were getting a lot of use of force, a lot of lethal force encounters, a lot of shootings. And there was sort of this break off where they sort of branched into two different directions. Uh, Wide Lick Horn, all those guys went hard. And what they sort of did is a lot of that they incorporated into the Soldier of Fortune three gun matches. So Mike Harry's, who was another API instructor back then, uh, inventor of the Harry's flashlight technique, uh, had a program called Southern California Tactical Combat, which I, I shot generally twice a month with them. And they set up these insane, practical, very reality-based competitions where they ran a, a stopwatch or a timer to kind of get baselines and assess performance, but you didn't get trophies or a medal or any real you got peer recognition but you didn't get a prize for winning those things and but what they would do is stuff like i remember one where the theory was that okay so you're engaging a long target you have cover available say 10 yards away you're here do you engage the threat or do you go to cover and then engage the threat so that would be the problem. They would throw that out there that you, and, you know, half the dudes would engage the threat and the other half would run to cover because they think that's the smart thing to do. And then they would look at the times, the hits, the whole thing and assess that and go, you know, what we've determined is the best thing to do is draw and put rounds on target and then go get some cover mm -hmm. because you're exposed a lot trying to get there. So it was more of a test protocol using timers and scoring than it was about the timer and the scoring, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. And wide lick and, and horn, boy, you always, you know, shooting those programs, you always got a little scared when wide lick and horn came down from Bakersfield, you know, because they were bringing courses to test, you know, and they were testing the Soldier of Fortune match courses or stuff they were working on. And it was amazing stuff and it was hugely practical and the civilians and law enforcement and military people alike all shot together. Uh, there was uh, one of the most distinct things I remember is the gear in particular. So I usually shot in some sort of duty gear. Um, I will never forget one of the best shooting guys up there always showed up in a Colt officer's model in a Sparks uh summer special behind his hip under a t-shirt every match i don't care what we were doing that's how he shot it wasn't about winning in the numbers that's how he carried every day uh he was a, a an arm i mean he was a citizen with a ccw in california which was rare that was his carry rig and that's all he ever shot up there and so you had this sort of level of seriousness about defensive practical uh anti-personnel lethal use of force shooting versus game shooting 
for prizes and money. And there was a huge sort of divide in that. And that was part of kind of the way it went. But what I found was you were busy enough with the street stuff because I was going back and, you know, my agency was having, you know, we're having Austin Ball shootings, you know, every month or two or three. Um, and by the time I was in my second shooting, I had pretty much given up on all the competitive stuff altogether. And that's when I really started. Uh, I went from Southern California tactical combat with, I would just go out and shoot with Scotty. Cause initially, like for me personally, I would shoot uh, speed steel on Friday nights. And then um, I would go out to, to Southern California tactical combat. So I used to shoot with guys like Jim Boland. You know, everybody's like, well, bulky, you know, that guy doesn't, you know, understand. Compa-. You know, I used to do that. I used to shoot with the, you know, I, you know, there's not a lot of guys who had one. Of, I probably had one of the first triple chamber compensated I still have it, 1911s on the planet. I mean, I was shooting all the gamer gear. I had the Ernie Hill speed rigs. The, you know, I did both. And I just found um, once I started getting deep in the weeds as a cop and doing the tactical stuff, and when I, and as soon as I got exposed to the LAPD guys, it was the kind of play shooting, as Scotty Reitz calls it, was over, pretty much over for me. And it became very much trying to do this on the other end of things. Because... So you had this sort of perfect storm of you had these sort of what you in Georgia would call a large agency. We in California would call medium agencies um, with very huge personality driven instructors who were all trained gunsight doctrine. Another biggie, and I don't know what his history at gunsight was, but he was definitely one of the best guys out there. Larry Nichols at Burbank. And that's where Burbank probably popped into your head last week because yeah. Nichols was ran an incredible program out at Burbank. So you had these sort of, and a lot of those guys, like I said, they were Vietnam vets. They were uh, very serious uh, combative backgrounds. And they're now in a place where they can make policy. They can do shooting courses. They can do stuff that was heavily influenced through gunsight. And then they could take the results back to Gunsight and start modifying stuff. You know, most people don't realize what we call shooting from two and the whole shiv works, uh, you know, shooting from retention and all that stuff. You know, John Helms and Larry Mudgett basically invented that out of a need because they were like, well, you know, because what everybody did back then is you sort of used the FBI point shooting technique for the retention shooting which didn't work real well so these guys threw all of that out and went to a a you know sighted presentation of the firearm from the holster or from a ready or guard um into the eye line well you kind of needed something for when you were entangled or in contact and those guys came up with basically shooting from two and that was all brought back and then sort of instilled into the gun sight doctrine because you had people sort of taking from one place, bringing it back to a place like California where they were busy, applying it in the field and teaching it to kind of line cops and watching them apply it. And it was working really, really well. I mean, my agency, guys I trained were shooting at over 90% in the field, including plenty of headshots, failure drills, all the textbook, modern technique stuff. 
And the rest of our guys were shooting at 17% like the rest of the country uh-huh. because their firearm staff guys were, were forced by our brass to make them shoot that way, which didn't work. And I kind of did my own thing. And anybody who knows me knows how well I take, you know, supervisory suggestions from executive management. I'm a very unsupervisable person. I think the word that keeps getting thrown around is abrasive. And uh, so you had a lot of guys who were older versions of me, and that's who I was modeling myself after who these personalities would come in and go, no, this is the way we're doing it. We're putting this gun site into these agencies. This is our new firearms program. And pretty soon the big agencies had to sort of look at that and go, well, gosh, maybe the FBI wasn't right. You know? And like I said, the biggie at LA was when they moved Mudgett left SWAT and went to firearms and then kind of surrounded himself, had a really good staff with him. And then Helms went to SIS and Scotty basically took over at D platoon. So you still had all those core guys kind of with running this experiment, but Larry got to do it on a massive scale. All right. But before so, we go down, before we go down that road, uh, let me interject for our audience, a little historical perspective here as well. All right. All of this at Gunsight is taking place late sixties, early seventies was when Gunsight first opens. Uh, it was 76. Yeah. And, you know, all the stuff at Big Bear Lake was in the 50s, if I remember the from the literature correctly. Six, six, 50s, 60s. Yeah. So 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. And then uh, Cooper opens gun site and all that's formulating. Well, in 74, you had Newhall. And that was kind of, you know, the beginning of the, quote, officer survival movement that started as well and so the timing was ripe i mean the stage was set for okay there's some we what we're doing is not working we need to be looking at something else that will work better and to me it's it's just kind of you had two things happening independently but then all of a sudden they merged does that seem accurate Incredible. Yeah, is is all of a sudden? Well, it wasn't just Newhall. You were getting lots yeah. of cops killed. Right, seventies. I mean, awful. again, these the seventies was awful. Um, and so it, you didn't have to. You had the big stage stuff like Newhall that were highly publicized, but in those eras, every police department of any stature you went to probably had had an officer killed in the last few years, um, or injured in shootouts. I mean, my own agency, I'm trying to think, I mean, once I kind of got on, we got our program in place, we weren't losing officers, but before that we were getting, we had an officer killed, uh, in a shootout. We had guys getting shot in ambushes. We had all sorts of stuff And the biggie in my area. And it's worth, worth the read of Norco 80 or the audible book. Um, Norco in 1980 and my my neck of the woods was was huge. Um, I recommend anybody to get the Norco 80 book and stuff. It'll blow your mind of what those guys went through and, and, and stuff like really not addressing PTSD and how the court cases went and just the the you know heroic level stuff of the officers involved who were just horribly ill prepared for a lot of that. And so you had a lot of this. It was like I said, it was sort of the perfect storm. Dri- day driving distance to gun site. You had the right people kind of coming and going, the right personalities. Like I said, 
a lot of those guys I grew up under who, um, you know, had uh, very heavy experience in Vietnam, then kind of training with people like Cooper and the whole circle that was surrounded by, and then them coming back into police agencies and kind of not putting up with a bunch of guff from anybody. Uh, they had the right personalities to tell basically their command staff to pound sand. This is what we're doing. I mean, if you were ever around uh, somebody like, you know, whether it was Mudgett or um, Larry Nichols at Burbank, uh, you know, like I said, Dean Caputo is sort of a contemporary of mine. Uh, Dean and I are probably as well liked as anybody in my command staff, like we haven't been on anybody's Christmas list ever. Um, and you, you had the people with the personalities to kind of do this, but you weren't, you, believe me, like I said, you weren't getting promoted, you weren't getting much, but you could at least make these things happen. And it was sort of a perfect storm of we got to see firsthand what worked. But you also had these big agencies that were sort of clinging to the past training stuff. And you could see where it wasn't working because they were shooting, you know, 15 to 20% in the field, terrible stuff, getting guys hurt. And then you saw these little experiments and everybody's going, God, these, these little agencies are shooting the piss out of everybody or in a situation like metropolitan division you know god the gunfighters are shooting the piss out of everybody what are they doing and then they're like uh yeah we we put a sight between us and the bad guy and press the trigger to the rear on a controlled press and we're using two hands and isometric tension and then developments like for example with a harry's flashlight technique which again you can only do with isometric tension you know, you know i was talking to Kegel last night and you know sort of my big laugh on that is I go yeah you know why weapon mounted lights are so damn because with the guys who shoot um ISO you know an isosceles based you know muscle mm -hmm. skeletal based system there's no good flashlight technique other than the surefire you know the temple index right. which is essentially one-handed shooting or the light mounted to the gun all the other techniques that go with that suck I can tell you that firsthand from 19 and a half years of working nights and weekend patrol, they all suck. Um, and you have to hold the light in a stupid way or have some stupid, you know, switching operation that's, uh, goes against everything where Harry's really worked well, which fit in with the isometric, um, tension on the gun and how you hold it. You know, that's another thing too, is even how you hold the gun for grip recoil control grip and gun control grip are two very different things. So where we get really into the weeds now about recoil control in the grip was very important to the sport shooters and not very important to the uh, defensive field shooters who having a grip that better controlled the gun through 360 degrees retention operating with flashlights moving through buildings moving around people that that how you hold the gun there versus how you hold the gun to re control recoil are sort of not the same and that was again even another sort of split on this so a lot of this stuff you can start seeing you know where the development went and what we were looking at back then and it, it you know it was kind of interesting uh, just kind of being there through that whole process. And now, you know, I've been, been, uh, doing this, you know, well, you know, over 30 years now, and you've, you watch these things turn and turn and even kind of like an 86, when I first got into this, 
I was uh, very much, I was not like my partner, Wayne Dobbs, who was, you know, shooting in a onesie on grandpappy's lap, but you know, granny's pond. Cause you know, I always say my granny lived in West LA and didn't have a pond. We went to the store. And so I didn't grow up in a gun type culture, uh, but I was a very much a accuracy or a uh, historical accuracy guy. I was a history major initially in college and I liked research. So even back in the eighties, I was researching all this myself personally to see what, what, what direction do I want to go? So at the time I was reading Cooper, I was reading the stuff from, from Fowler and those guys, all the initial stuff from Latham, Enos, all those guys. I mean, they took shooting to a complete new level it was just a different place. And initially, if you want to know the truth, initially, I was a hard ISO shooter, isosceles shooter, because I started as a competitive shooter. So the people who initially were very heavily influencing me were the Mickey Fowlers, the Mike Dalton's, the, you know, that whole crew, the Enos is coming up, you know, you know, this kid, Rob Latham, you know, were, were who I was sort of modeling after. And like I said, even shooting competitively, I was shooting with some of the biggest name gunsmiths and the people who hung around them in the area. I just found as soon as my first day on the job, it was like, God, none of this stuff works particularly right when this really isn't about the shooting anymore. And then once I got out with Mudget, uh, it was life-changing for me. When you've been around, you know, I was around, Mudget, Helms, and Scotty in their absolute uh, prime, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, watching those guys work, I, I, I mean, the light bulb went on is this is what professionals with guns look like. And then I started surrounding myself with those type of people. That's where I started interacting with um, like-minded people of my sort of age group who are sort of the next group coming up. Um, of instructors who are heavily influenced by the really the guys who set the foundation of this. Right. Um, yeah, I made a bunch of people mad on the internet recently when I, I said something to the effect of, you know, the people who have a first person experience with violence uh, and, and all this we're talking about, they tend to focus on things like decision making, where the people to whom it's all theoretical, they tend to focus on metrics. Yeah, well, the the timer is, yeah. you know, I'm not going to give the attributor to who I got this discussion with, but it's like, um, you know, it's like the batting average at the batting cages. Mm-hmm. I went to dinner last night with a, uh, a baseball pitcher. Uh, he's a minor leaguer trying to get to the major leagues. And the amount of parallels in that whole world to kind of what we do is almost funny um you know he says well what do you think everybody asks me the first thing you're a pitcher you know professional baseball player and a pitcher what's the first thing everybody asks him speed of the fastball how fast do you throw a fastball and he's all you know i've been clocked this year at 98 which means you know probably in the bullpen he can throw a 100 mile an hour fastball but he's been clocked on the field at 98 but he goes it doesn't matter he goes, you know how relevant that is to what I do once I get out on the field and I'm, he goes, you know, the reason I'm not in the uh, big leagues and I'm playing minor league ball is, you know, my ability to deliver this stuff when I'm sitting in front of a bunch of fans who are yelling horrific stuff at me and there's games on the line. He goes, you know, you want to talk to me about this, talk to me about when I face a, a guy on a three, two pitch, 
He goes, now we can talk. Now we can get into the weeds. And it's sort of like where we are. It's like, it's not about your 98 mile an hour fastball. It's what are you going to, the, the discussion we had last night on how you throw a three, two pitch was as in depth as sort of some of these forced decisions of, yeah. well, if I, if I do this, he already saw that. So I have to do this, but boy, is that a high pressure risky move, you know, and, it, and it's very complex and it has nothing to do with his hundred mile an hour fastball, nothing at all to do with it. So a lot of parallels in this, you know, are kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, I did hear, uh, I'll, Watched several different interviews and podcasts with Scotty Racer recently. And I'm not, I think this is the one that he did with a podcast called The Squad Room, where he, he basically said, you know, if you take a guy and teach him how to drive on a Volkswagen and then you go put him in a Formula One race car and put him out on the track, you shouldn't be shocked when he crashes the Formula One race car into the wall. Right. And so there is, I think, a place for high-level technical skill and focusing on that. But that can't be the only focus. Well, that's the problem. Is yeah. So you, you need that. And, you know, I am yeah. an advocate. for Nobody probably secretly watches more USPSA GMs shooting <laughs> on the Internet than probably I do. Well, no. The, the other the, uh, in, in my circle of old fogey curmudgeon dudes, I watch yeah. a lot of that because I'm looking at the technical shooting and it awes me. It's no different than watching Mike Phelps in a pool. You know, it's, I can't do it. You and I could swim from the time we could breathe and never be able to do what Phelps does. You know, a lot of those guys, and this came up with a discussion last night. um, A lot of these guys have freakish level vision or some sort of uh, twitch reflexes, something Mm -hmm. that makes them stand out where they've found their place to exhibit that, that the problem is a lot of the normal humans can't do. And that was a big thing for me. And that was sort of leads into this as well is we were taking the stuff from sort of gunsight and IPSC originally were all sort of intertwined. A lot of us, when we got out into our agencies using that type of stuff, we're trying to apply it to line police officers who aren't into shooting, who aren't into guns, who the gun and their ballpoint pen are about the same level of importance to them, you know, who you had to, I mean, even paying them to go train was a drudgery. You had to find what you could successfully do with those. You know, I always joke about like the guys from the tier one military units i go god i wish like my students were the top one percent of one percent of the military and basically almost olympic level athletes it sure make my life a lot easier trying to train them mm-hmm. as opposed to what i was faced with training getting them you know so you can take a lot of these principles now is there stuff we can learn from indycar that we can apply to driving vws absolutely but it's not the same standard. I used to use the argument that, you know, um, if you put me in an Indy car on a track, I'm going to get smoked by the Indy guys. If you took an Indy driver and put them in a crown Victoria in a police pursuit that in the alleys of Southern California, I bet you, I hold my own, you know, and it's because it's just a different world. 
it's a, it, you know, believe me, alleys are like, you know, one of those, you know, I tell people, I go, if you look at the pursuits in like the movie Colors, End of Watch and stuff, I go, those are horribly accurate. They, they give me like almost, you know, uh, flashbacks. Um, you know, those are the ultimate surprise match of driving. You know, it's like, it, it's crazy. And our shootings were no different. You know, when you start looking at these officer-involved shootings, and I was able to either be there or uh, firsthand investigate a ton of them, is they're crazy, chaotic events of which the shooting problem is not really the problem. I mean, the difficult if you sat there and go, let's recreate just the shot on this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to go to four yards, and you have to hit something about like that, you know, yeah. in four four yards in a some reasonable amount of time. And I mean, in our circle, how many people we know who can't do that on demand at a very high level? Yeah, it's not that yeah. difficult. Right. <laughs> it, it's all of the <laughs> shoot, no shoot, chaos, background, foreground stuff moving. Right. Do I decide it, what, what are the politics at my department like recently? When did I get in my last one? Am I going to get in trouble? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there that now factor in to make what is a basically fairly easy shot very difficult to accomplish correctly with all the right decision making and one of the benefits of me for example hanging around with guys like scotty and even this whole crew of people you're talking about okay you got to realize again back to the perfect storm what circuit appeals court in the federal system did all of our stuff fall under Ninth. Does anybody want to have your force cases tested in the ninth? If you had a choice of which court do I want my, you know, color of authority uh, stuff tested in, are you going to pick the ninth? Because we didn't get any choice. So again, all of our stuff was sort of tested as well into an extremely highly litigious place. You know, I, I laugh. You know, when I moved to Texas. I'm like. I start talking about liability and everybody's like, well, you can only sue, you can only get 250,000 here. I'm all what, (laughs) you know, they're, Oh, well you're maxed at 200. I mean, that's, you get a quarter of a million dollars, even if we're horribly wrong. I'm like, Oh, we didn't even start the, you know, the, 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 the timer. I go, cause everything in California went federal because our federal courts were cuckoo clocks. And you were literally, you know, you had line patrol officers getting sued by like for $47 million and stuff like that. I mean, it was crazy. So we also had to test all of these programs in a highly, highly litigious society where we got to figure out where the limits were and what worked and what didn't. And I mean, guys like whether it was the uh, LAPD program that that Mudgett his crew did, whether it was uh, Larry Nichols was genius at this stuff. I mean, Larry Nichols was actually genius on how he set his program up as a court defensible program. My program, which came from LA, got to the point it was not challenged in any of our court cases anymore. I mean, we just stopped getting sued when we started doing this because they found out that when you have a program that you can justify everything they stop going after the use of force and they start going to the decision-making of supervision or some other avenues, but they leave the shooting part alone. Um, And I was winning those in depositions. We weren't even getting to court on them before that went away. That's a win. 
you know, when you're not even talking about the shooting part in court. So again, these programs started getting very court defensible because they were very high accountability. And again, that's a lot of what gets emphasized with a modern technique and the programs coming out of gun site were very, very, because that was going back to, you know, they were sending all this stuff out and what was coming back was, Hey, we're, we're really winning also is not just winning gunfights. We're winning the court battles. Right. And that you know, our guys a, aren't getting sued. <laughs> you know, we're, right. we're winning across the board. That that's a common thread. And like all the interviews that I've listened to with Scotty Reese, the recent ones with Helms and, and several of those other guys of that, that era is they all talk about the court part of it. And you know, well, not only is what we're doing technically have to be correct, but it has to be legally correct as well. And you know, I'm not a high level match shooter. I have shot competitively and I, I attribute shooting, getting into competitive shooting at the level that I did with awakening to me that there was a higher level of skill than what I was used to. I've told this numerous times on various, various shows and maybe even this one that yeah, I could go to the training center and I was in the top three in every class that I went to and I thought I was good. And then I go to my first IDPA match and got smoked by a guy, you know, that repairs printers for a living. And right. Oh, there's a whole different level of good out here. Now I quickly, mm-hmm. you know, saw a great increase in skill when I started focusing on some of those things, but folks, I gotta tell you, when the worst thing that could happen to you is that you lose points because you hit a no shoot or you screw up and you get disqualified versus your weighing doing that when you've got years in prison on the line and everything you own being gone, it's a different world. Uh, it is a completely different world. Um, I chased a guy into a house that we had just thrown out on a protective order uh, from, from his house. We left. And before we're like two or three miles away, guy has shown back up at the house. We're getting down on one call from, from the, the female half of this. We fly back to the scene lights and sirens. And I chase this guy into a nearby vacant house and he runs inside as far as he can go. And I know it's vacant because we've carried half a body out of there a few months before that. Um, I chase him. He runs as far as he can go till he gets to a place where he's cornered and he spins around and he shoves his hand in his pocket like he was going for a weapon. And in the time that it took me to make my draw, I had to decide whether I was going to kill this guy or not. You don't get that in matches. Well, and, and, you know, this ties in and I'm going to just tie into that whole sub second draw thing yeah. for one sec, sure. because it relates to this. So for me, and this is based a lot on experience and stuff for me, the draw is two parts. There is the draw and there is the decision on what to do with that draw. And mm-hmm. I, I put them into two completely different places. So one is accessing the firearm. And then the second phase of that is based on what I'm seeing, what I'm going to do with that firearm, whether I'm going to draw to a ready finger straight, I'm going to draw onto target finger straight, I'm going to draw onto target finger on, ready to shoot, um, or ready to complete that press, Uh, I'm going to go to a subversive draw, you know, uh, whatever, there's a lot of different outcomes to that after the accessing. And to get to some certain speed 
goals, you have to throw a lot out yep. that I'm not willing to throw out. And, you know, it was like I told a lot of people, I had a discussion with Helms a while back. I go, you know, I'm, I'm a little slow on all my presentations because I always draw the finger straight. I practice that way. I always practice the finger straight. Um, and then I get on because I always found that in the field, I ended up having to go draw and then onto a site track because everything started moving or whatever. So I really separated into two separate things. And I go, I know I could pick up a lot of time and stuff and getting on that trigger early and doing all this stuff. But, you know, and John says, well, he goes, that's how I do it also. He goes, that's how you don't shoot the wrong people. So I've struggled with this. Do I want to perform better in drills when I'm in somebody's class or at some thing? Or do I want to be John Helms who had an entire law firm dedicated to suing him and survive that? Which one do I want to be? And I've gone back to, I'm going to keep my draw into two separate things, you know, and, and, you know, I'm almost kind of done with the arguing about it. You want to, you want to do all this stuff, knock yourself out. You can figure it out the hard way or the right way, but I've already done all of this. You know, I've been in the one I've been in the, you know, I've got enough surprise match championships in the field that I don't need to, you know, I'm kind of disgusted enough with the whole industry and the internet and social media that like, figure it out yourself. Because we've tried to tell you guys this to save you the grief involved of what these court cases look like. And like I said, that cancer that is California's civil and litigious system, their criminal justice system, um, it, which is, has nothing to do with justice, it's a legal system based out of California, is a cancer that's affecting the entire country now. It, it, we figured out how to navigate that properly. Um, you look at Scotty's shootings, you look at my stuff, you look at whatever I go, you know, they're in policy. There's no civil lawsuit involved. Everybody got hit who needed to get hit every round was, I mean, can you ask for better? Most of these shootings that we're talking about, most of the training, we figured out how to do this. And when we try to tell you that this stuff doesn't apply, it's a cool thing to be able to do. It's like, mm -hmm. Well, if you can't, you know, it's like the bodybuilders at the gym, you know, they're the competitive bodybuilder at the gym. Everybody sucks compared to them and they're not healthy and they're whatever their mirror to them is their timer. It doesn't mean everybody else in the gym is unhealthy. It just means they're not as dedicated to doing a certain thing as you are, which is cool. I mean, everybody likes looking at those people because it's like, wow, that's impressive and took a lot of work. When I look at people who've got a sub one second draw onto an A zone and stuff, I go, wow, that's awesome. You did a lot of work. Now, don't tell me though, that I can't, that, that somehow that's, that, that, that anybody who can't do that sort of a failure in, in defensive shooting world. Cause you know what, bro, you never tested that in a two-way situation and all of the stuff I'm developing now is super high accountability stuff where there's, because I find now that we've gotten to the point that the shooting is so good because of those people, I will give the credit where credit is due. You've done so much development with sighting systems, with gun systems, with grip, with all of these things that the shooting part is really not that hard, but the, the decision-making is much harder. 
Yeah. You know, the eras we came out of and developed all this stuff, we were in an era where we could actually shoot a whole lot of people for the main reason we had a whole ton of high-level crime, very violent times, and we were equipped with a firearm and an impact device. And if you couldn't solve the problem with the impact device, whether it was a stick, a flashlight, or a sap, if one of those things didn't solve the problem, it was a firearms problem. We shot a boatload of people without body cams. We didn't have tasers. Nobody used mace. I mean, nobody. You were, yeah. you were, you, you were, it was something you carried on your belt for, 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 uh, you know, spraying ants and stuff with, um, you know, we now have OC that's very effective. We have tasers, we have, which, which again, introduce a whole bunch of other problems, yeah. but this was developed under simpler times, but simpler times gave us quantity. And quantity gave us the understanding of how to do this correctly without developing high levels of, of uh, liability. And now, like I said, with everything being on camera everywhere and uh, unrealistic societal expectations, I don't think the road to go to is shooting more, better, faster as a solution you know the new brag is how many rounds can you shoot in whatever seconds that like oh i can get 14 rounds out of the gun in two seconds well okay that's fabulous if you want to be in a shooting where you shoot somebody in 14 times before they can hit the ground i think that's great but it's right. nothing i'm interested in because yeah. i don't want to be on i don't want to be see what that jury is going to do later or how that's going to look on film to anybody who's assessing it, who are not your people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We'll get ready to take a drink because I'm about to say, say the name. Uh, Eric Gilhouse <laughs> was, um, was on uh, Brian Easter's podcast here recently, kind of talking about the, the old combat triad from Cooper. And they got on the subtopic of malfunctions that tend to occur in gunfights. And Eric made a very, very keen observation. He said, you see two things happen. You see cops that get ahead of the situation and get the gun out to a ready position and it's already in their hands when the shooting problem versus cops that get surprised and then have to make the draw and shooting decision all at the same time. And that's where you see more malfunctions occur. Um, now, I haven't gone back and done the research and the data looking at that, but in, you know, just on the thought bubble part, it makes sense. You know, if you draw out, get to ready, you're going to have a better grip on the gun when you, and you bring it up into the eye line. And so that kind of brings me back to as if you're relying on your draw speed. Well, that's, that's probably going to be a surprise thing. What it gets back to is uh, on that is yeah. do you want a slower draw with a better grip yeah. or a less consistent draw that's faster, but you could cack the grip. Now, now people sit there and I, I, I have to put up with all the making fun of, well, there you go again, saying front sight press, oh. you know, all that front sight emphasis and press. Well, if your grip's right, well, you know why? Because what I found when I was investigating all these shootings on the surprise shootings, almost every time the grip was crap that my guys were dealing with. So when my officers were dealing with a crap grip, how do you fix a crap grip? 
sights and trigger. Yeah. If you have a stellar grip, the gun guides itself into the sight line. You don't have to do much sight work at all. And then it just comes down. And if you got a death grip on the gun, your trigger press doesn't really even matter at all either. I mean, are they, they start taking a lower priority if you can anchor that recoil driven grip that is and again the what the one second guys got is their index is off the hook um now if you can nail that then sights and trigger press stop mattering a whole lot anymore the problem was what we see all the time in the field is these draws are coming under a crisis surprise situation that is far from optimal or planned and now we have a crap grip which throws a lot of the automaticity stuff off because you're not on a subconscious level with a crap grip. You have a situation that's developing where you're not really focused on the shooting, you're focused on the problem. And then we're shooting from a lot of asymmetric positions in which the gun is in space being shot and not locked. And all of a sudden we get tons of malfunctions. And again, you know, guys can sit there and tell me how, uh, you know, terrible revolvers are for reliability, you know, whatever in your 500 round class. Yeah, I'll give you that. Where we never saw problems with the revolvers in the field was when they were getting drawn inside of cars, when they were getting shot inside of cars, where they were getting shot entangled, where they were getting shot with a crap grip, all of these things. They were incredibly reliable. Where what we're seeing is look how many of these officer involved shootings you're looking at on video that involve a malfunction clearance from what is normally an incredibly reliable pistol. Well, because as soon as you shoot it outside of its its area of perfection, you know, yeah. is all of a sudden they don't work so good or they're hitting door pillars and A-frames and seat belts and you know, all of the other stuff that come into this. So again, and you know, that was a lot of what we were doing. Uh, you're kind of getting back to that era of that we're talking about in SoCal. Larry Nichols started every single phase with an officer's qualification from inside their car. You drove to the range and then, okay, ready, go, yeah. <laughs> you know, right out of the car. Um, we shot a lot from inside of real vehicles uh, in these training matches, these training competitions uh, and, and for, for, if we're not on video, that was in air quotes, the training competitions, <laughs> but we were doing a lot from inside of vehicles. Uh, we were doing a lot in entangled spaces. Um, like I said, when I was up at Southern California tactical combat, particularly, like I said, if wide lick and horn came down, man, the targeting stuff got crazy. I mean, literally you walk into, it's like you're walking into a seven 11 and shooting, you know, through, you know, cereal boxes and stuff like that on store shelves. I mean, that was how crazy this stuff was. And, but we got to see stuff firsthand that, that testing. And I think the big thing with Horn being a fire guy is um, uh, Peter, the power meter, you know, Horn came up with all that stuff, these metal devices to test what major and minor was, or, you know, that everybody was shooting full power ammo back then, Um, you know, before we had, you know, affordable chronographs at the matches um you had targets that wouldn't go down you had all sorts of crazy targeting systems these guys would come up with that really pushed the envelope of truly uh defensive shooting and you know again all of that stuff was coming back out of uh gun sight and that whole circle of people 
who set their foundation, you know, kind of one of the things like we were talking with David on a system, I've always called it, you build your house on a, on, if you build your house on a solid foundation and a really good house, you can start doing room ad additions to that through your training thing. My entire foundational basement of the house, the foundation and the initial home was built on the deep platoon modern technique based training program. And then as I started going through life, I started adding rooms on and second stories and a, and a man room and a this and a that and some other stuff. It's evolved, but my foundation is still that. And so you, you, what this came out of that era and a lot of that modern technique is a lot of people built some incredibly, incredibly good foundations to their shooting stuff. And their firearms operations, their training programs were built on that foundation. And it made it a lot easier. And who it really made it easy on was the generations that came behind it. So that first generation, for example, Larry Mudgett got in the police academy, could start them that way, were foundationally, foundationally horrible hugely ahead of the curve than people like me who had to unlearn point shooting. We had to unlearn everything we learned in the academy, which, which for most people, the police academy is the most uh, influential training experience you have because you spent the most time with it. And you kind of always go back to that mama. Well, trying to unlearn that was hard. Yeah. And Uh, I'm facing that challenge myself. And that I learned, you know, I went to the academy in, in 99. And as you know, there was this big thing throughout the 90s of what the, the competition shooters derisively called the tactical turtle. Yeah, and that that's what I was trained in with the hard locked out elbows, shoulders pressed forward, etc. And I got pretty good at that system. Now, about 2015 ish. I started having aches and pains that were a direct result of shooting that way. And it, it does put a limit on your high-end technical skill as how far as you're going to be able to go. Because it is harder to get into that position, harder to get out of that position. And, you know, if you have to break and move to something else and reestablish a new shooting position. So it does create limits. Now, even though that now I know better, shoulders square, gun brought up more into the eye line instead of head down to where the, where the gun is, except even though I know that there is a technical superior, technologically superior way of doing that. When I get tired, when I get pushed or when I get surprised, I you go, go back, right back to your, I go, back, I go yeah. back to that, to that primary, you know, motor program that I spent a lot of time building. I go right back to it. Now, when I can walk out there and say, okay, remember to do all these things, I tend to perform technically better. But, you know, there are times when I, when I get pushed, it's hard locked out. And I right. look, at, look at pictures of me from, like, when I first started shooting IDPA, you know, if somebody take a picture of something at a match to where I, somebody takes a picture of me shooting now, I see a very much of a difference in my stance, in my presentation, et cetera. But, you know, that's what's the strong program that is there. But I go back to that program. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting too. And then the adaptions, you know, talking about injuries, that's another thing that's almost hilarious. All my my buddies who are uh, modern ISO shooters all have elbow issues. They all got like tennis elbow and elbow uh -huh. stuff. And all my my kind of hard uh, modern technique isometric weaver type shooters, uh, it's hand hand uh, stuff. Like I got horrific arthritis in my hands, uh -huh. and kind of just in a difference of how we grip guns. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's all kind of interesting how it plays together, but you know, and then you got to kind of learn and unlearn this stuff. Injuries yeah. are a big part. Um, and that's why I tell guys, you know, stance is sort of stupid. Um, yeah. You know, you want to be in some sort of fighting stance. Uh, mine drastically has changed recently because now that my, uh, you know, left hamstring is held on by string and, you know, and I got bubble gum and, you know, yeah. uh, duct tape holding basically my whole lower chassis together. Um, my stance has changed a bit, uh, with my body just adapting to how it has to support my, uh, my, uh, you know, Shrek build. Um, it's, it's a lot of this will change and stuff, but it doesn't change the fact to, you know, I need to get the gun in the eye line. I need to get sights confirmed. I need to press the trigger straight to the rear. I need to manipulate yeah. the gun a certain way, but a lot of this stuff is simply minutia. And then all that comes down to, do I have a core enough performance base? that I can apply that or a, a systemal foundation that I can apply into the problem solving thing. And, you know, kind of what we found back in those eras is I was sort of the first success generation. And then the ones who came before me were sort of the foundational ones of, you know, the modern technique at a gun site was an amazingly good structure to build on for problem solving. And, you know, there was a lot of people involved in making that work. Like I said, you know, you know, we can drink again because I'm going to say it, my brother Gelhouse, I mean, my twin from a brother from a different <laughs> mother. You know, you know, Eric's one of my best pals in the whole world because a lot of this has been very similar from us, just in opposite uh, parts of California, which are like two different worlds apart. But, you know, you know who punched a lot of mine and Eric's instructor tickets was Bill Jeans. Yeah. You know, another name you don't hear a lot of right. anymore, but man, back, back when we were coming up, man, Bill Jeans was the man. I mean, Bill Jeans was the dude you went to for some very high level learning and, you know, Bill's an encyclopedic reference of stuff. Now there was his, you know, kind of falling out with Gunsight, which a lot of people have had that over the years under different uh, ownership of the business side. But the foundational side of all those guys, whether it was Jeans, Auerbuck, Pat Rogers, uh, you know, the crew from uh, Deep Platoon, you know, and then again, we're talking about guys, you know, a lot of people forgot, like Wide Lick and Horn, um, who were all instructors. You had the Stock Brothers, uh, Giles and Ed. You know, there's a lot of people who were involved in this. Again, you know, Dean Caputo, um, you know, Nichols out there. And then, you know, talking to Greco today, the in the on the federal side kind of at quantico you know the hot shooters back in the day were the secret service guys uh -huh. where do you think the secret service guys who started all of that really high speed shooting want to guess where they were were before they went back east la yeah <laughs> weird huh uh -huh. <laughs> yeah you know weird yeah. it's all and again a lot of that went right back to kind of the combination of gunsight southwest pistol league yeah. Then you had some splits, but it's all sort of coming out of the same 
uh, idea, the same test protocol, and it was sort of getting tested on the competition field at Southwest Pistol League and then getting tested in the field with all these uh, police firearms instructors. So it was kind of, like I said, it was an interesting time in the development of what we do. Yeah, you know, there, there's not an analog on the East Coast to gun sites. You know, there, there's nothing here comparatively in gun sites, not within easy driving distance from no, where I live. No. Trust me, I've driven the gun site. It took me three days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, what I did today was I reached out to some of the early guys that uh, developed the firearms training at the Georgia Public Safety Training Center, which is where I got a lot of my early training. And the the common threads tend to be uh shaw's mid-south yep. school rogers and fletsy and so that was kind of the big guys here that kind of pushed it but yeah we're talking about this whole thing in the 60s and 70s is where all of this is taking place in the west coast well folks in the southeast mm. it wasn't until the late 80s and the 90s where police academies actually became a real thing yeah Although back in that area, you guys were crushing PPC. Yeah. Yeah. The Georgia, the Georgia guys and the guys yeah. down south, man, PPC was a thing. Uh, all of the, all of the original, <laughs> all of the original gypsy guys were PPC, yes. Yep. And yeah. that's very reflective. Again, that was sort of one yeah. of the big changes at a gun site was it was sort of kind of moving away from a lot of the aspects of PPC, which, uh, you know, again, nobody presses a trigger like a ppc right. high level ppc guys man when it mm -hmm. comes to pressing a trigger trigger those are yeah. the dudes period the problem with that was they just weren't fast yeah you know and then you kind of got the other side is like i said sort of timers came in you know mm -hmm. and all of a sudden now it's all about what the timer tells you is right. again you have sort of the competition equipment is driving the focus and right wrong or indifferent that's sort of the yeah. way it is and it's sort of human nature yeah um it, it kind of know. it kind of amuses me and i, I don't want to get into this full scale here because we'll go for another hour if, if we open up this can we, of we worms, could likely can yeah. of worms is people that go out and they test some piece of equipment on their favorite drill the one that they shoot the best and it gives them a minuscule improvement in their score well, this is now the thing, and I've got to have it on my gun. Okay, did you go out and test that at night? Did you go out and test that uh, from a non-preferred shooting position, like flat on your back, flat on your side, you know, some crazy shooting position? Did, did you test that in all the ways in which you are very likely to have to shoot a gun before you made that decision to carry with that gear? And, of course, the answer is no. I, I, it, it gave me a 3% increase on shooting bulls at 25 yeah so that that makes it better or it took you know two tenths off of my time on this drill that i like to shoot so i got to have this on my gun and folks there's a whole lot more to it than just that um i absolutely see the precision benefit of red dots on pistols absolutely i i, I can tell you in shooting the demos because uh, I, I, now I spend a lot of my time training in jail staff that are going to the academy. So I'm demoing our, our state course that they have to shoot in the academy over and over and over again. I have a string of perfect scores running now shooting a red dot pistol. 
but I'm still not comfortable deploying it when I go and I'm having to be on my side shooting under a car when I'm having to do a lot of the things that I test with an iron sight gun, I'm still carrying an iron sight gun. Now, if we're going to go out and we're going to shoot for points, we're going to go out and shoot for score. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've heard you talk about sport shooting versus competition shooting uh, previously. The old guys that used to do this at my agency are all, all, all moved on and gone. But it was actually a thing amongst the firearms instructors that the lowest score on a quality day amongst the instructors, you bought lunch for every other Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a big deal to go stop (laughs) at the local chicken joint and have the other guy have to go to the counter and get your lunch and bring it to you. Yep. Okay. That's a big deal. It's also a big deal if you're the one that has to go up to the counter and pay for everybody's lunch. Well, and you know, and that's sort of getting back to the original topic is again the competition and the initial because they didn't have the timing devices you know everything was sort of settled at the Mm -hmm. end on man on man yeah you know it was man on man shooting and that's a whole kind of different ball game than shooting against a timer um you know it's uh and i laugh with the red dot thing because it's another you know you're anti-red dot you know I, i i put i put an aim point micro on my gun and all the stuff you guys think is cool it was all prototyped on my yeah. stuff and i was shooting my first aim point in 1990 yo know, i told you i was shooting with yeah. all those you know high level guys yeah. shooting speed steel my unlimited open class revolver had a red dot on it yeah you know it's it, it, i get it you know yeah. I, I get it you, yeah. you they're they're better you know there's yeah. less things to, to look at you know I, yeah. I i totally got that um but, you know, I just find now is I'm not, you know, I, my, my personal life is finally in a place in my world that's going so well that I'm not willing to dedicate the training time. Right. Um, I tell people I did my best training and shooting when I was in miserable home relationships, yeah. you know, it, is it gets real easy to go to the range a lot, you know, but um, yeah, the red dots are a thing. And, you know, that's going to, and see, that's where really to me, all the development is most of the, the basics sort of stay the same. This all comes down to, again, the whole thing changed at, at, at leather slap, yeah. you know, with, with using sights. I mean, sights have been since the guns were invented, the sights have been where all the technology is. And then yep. we're sort of adapting to those sights and the optical solutions. And again, this, a lot of this comes in, you know, involving vision and stuff like that. So there's a whole lot to the, the program and we figure that out sort of in high level competition is where that minutia of that little piece of the equation gets, gets sort of figured out that, uh, you know, which of this stuff works. And then it sort of becomes a process that you have to sort of remove yourself from that and then test it in the field. And I think a lot of the problem, I think, again, going back to this time in history is we had the ability to test so much of this for reals yeah. when it was new, it was truly something different and get to see these incredible swings on shooting performance in actual lethal force application, as opposed to field and training applications. Um, You know, just the numbers, you know, uh, you know, I tell guys what we learned from a lot of these, uh, old masters of shooting stuff is the the guys that are going to be in four five six twelve seventeen thirty two shootings 
are gone. Those days will never be amongst us again. They are not putting people out in the field anymore. I, I'm sure as soon as you hit three, you're going to be done forever in the field as a cop. And that's just when you start getting good at it, you know, is the reality. But we, what we had in those times is we had people out there actually applying lethal force with these techniques and these systems on a very regular basis that we really got to get a measure of how well they worked uh, versus what was theory. I mean, the whole thing was, uh, I mean, just proving that you can see your sights in a gunfight was a big deal. And this is all sort of where it came from as it came from yeah. here. This was the big deal that, you know, the, the, this, uh, you know, this guy, Jeff Cooper is talking about flash sight pictures. And now we have a whole bunch of people who are getting shot using flash sight pictures while everybody else at the same place is missing. Mm, that's some yeah. police work. We call that a clue. Yep. Um, the problem was, was getting, you know, trying to move the big agencies to that was very difficult. It was pretty. It was pretty easy to move the smaller ones with high high level personalities. It was very hard to get the big monoliths to move. Yeah. And you know we still see that to this day. Yeah. Uh, you know the the two things that cops hate is when everything changes them and everything stays the same. So right. It's it's, it's <laughs> and I can tell you. Yeah, you know, I was executive. I, I was the chief deputy for 12 years. Mm -hmm. I had complete and total control over a lot of things. One of them was firearms training. Mm -hmm. And it took me five years to get the ship turned. Right. When in I had small, yeah. you, when you had control of the ship. So the only yeah. other way to do it back kind of for guys like me was yeah. you had to be the you had to be literally a, a royal pain in the neck. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's not a, that's not a recipe for, uh, uh, career success. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we always have a joke and you're, you're one of the, you know, you're just in the right place for it. Kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you and Rob hot are probably the only two, but you know, we always tell people, I go, you know, the way to the top is not through the range. Yeah. That is not a, a recipe for success. If you're looking for, you know, getting to the top of the food chain and uh, police management, that's not a, yeah. And a, I had to, I, I had to leave the agency to do it. Right. And you were probably, yeah. Is, yeah. So you, you have a lot of these, you know, these factors built in and, you know, like I said, that's why sort of it's important mm -hmm. to go back to this era that we were talking about is because this is what delineated a lot of where yeah. we are today um, in just one of those unique times in history and probably the yeah. only other time we've had in history. And it's why I study it so much was probably the, the, the late twenties into the thirties was sort of like the seventies into the eighties mm -hmm. was a similar time with that. And, yeah. uh, and equally it was sort of between military, uh, between big wars, um, mm -hmm. you know, for us, sort of the time between Vietnam and really the global war on terror. Um, there wasn't a lot going on in that world to validate things. I mean, there were some little conflicts, but, right. uh, you know, we're seeing a whole new thing coming out of that. So yeah, it's, 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 and, it's some of these unique time in history. And interestingly, when the global war on terror began, where did the tier one units go mm -hmm. to learn room to room gunfighting? Right. They were going back to, I they mean, went, you they know, went the, to LAPD the, the, and trained with the Metro. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, and then, you know, now it's a different thing and, you know, you have different uh, levels of engagement and stuff, but now you look at the gear 
that is coming back for if you go look at guys at D team now and look at the gear they're carrying, it looks a lot like your tier one units. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this is sort of cross braided or, or, uh, you know, crossing each other, but the big key to it is, is sort of putting stuff into context of application. I think that's where we always have the problem is, is how it's being applied. And are you really applying it into your lane? Uh, a lot of the stuff that flies in an overseas counterterrorism mission or anti-insurgency mission does not apply to 7-Eleven in San Francisco. And you have to kind of be able to arrange that. Some of the skill sets are the same, but you have to kind of be able to uh, properly apply it. And, you know, again, that was sort of the beauty of guys like Wide Lick and Nichols and some of these really innovative guys was, again, targeting systems. And, you know, one of the other things they did, they taught you to stop shooting or when not to shoot. There was a lot of not shooting. And that's certainly uh, the biggest thing we're missing today is you don't have a lot of not shooting going on in shooting courses, you know, or, or firearms training. There's a ton of shooting and we're getting very good at the shooting part, but we're not really focusing what should be more attention into not shooting. Uh, Again, something all that was a very big emphasis with that system, which again, did not gel with the competitive guys. It didn't, the guys who's, job title i mean in their resume their job said professional shooter well not shooting is not really anything they're going to kind of spend a lot of time in building expertise on where the guy that said gun badge power to take life get sued lose everything 14th divorce and all that uh, not shooting is all of a sudden a pretty important yeah part of that equation so again this goes back to to what's sort of driving the gear and training train is what are the end goals and really for most of us the end goal is not shooting yeah and we seem to lose a lot of that we're we're back then with a lot of the guys i was training with it always seemed to be the emphasis was on uh not shooting to be the best one round of being next best two rounds, three rounds, and anything after that, you probably screwed up. Where now the emphasis seems seems to be is how many rounds can I possibly shoot in the shortest amount of time or how fast can I deliver the violation of the first goal of not shooting at all is how fast can I get out of that? So it's, again, it's just different people have different goals with this stuff and, and, uh, you know, you, you had a time when a lot of that was getting split up and we're just seeing a, a repackaging of that. You saw it kind of the first recycle of that sort of at the end of the 90s there. And we're recycling again now on, you know, you know, what is best, uh, yeah. more, better, faster or less, it, it's funny how not so much. It's funny how this stuff changes and we have different paradigm shifts and everything um i was in field training when columbine happened and i remember in the academy them talking to us about setting perimeters and SWAT teams coming in to deal with these type situations and then i haven't even graduated from training yet and columbine happens and within months, it was, oh, we're forming these five-man teams, and we're going, 
charging to the sound of gunfire to deal with these situations. And then, of course, so quickly, within years, we knew that that's not the best models. Whoever gets there first has got whoever gets there first has got to go in there and deal with the problem and everything. Right. So, while that's not necessarily the technique of shooting, there are constant evolutions of of change that come and we have to be open and adaptable to to those and we have to be looking for ways to do things better and i do want to give the competition guys credit in the fact that they did push the envelopes that did develop better gear that made the other parts of it easier or better um you know oh the the reason the reason the honda accord is such a wonderful car is because you can pretty much thank formula one for that you know i mean there there's a definitely a trickle down to all of this stuff um not that i would ever drive one of those things but you know well i mean a perfect example actually Mm -hmm. what i do drive Mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm part of the raptor club yeah um you know my raptor is basically a baja but well actually back in, in when i Back in the era we're talking about this, I could have driven my truck off the lot and won Baja. Yeah. With it. I mean, literally, I would have yeah. won ba- the Baja 1000 with what I drive every day uh-huh. in that era. You know who you can thank for that? The, Baja the guys guys. <laughs> who have been racing Baja for yeah. all these years. I'm a Southern California guy. It's all about Baja <laughs> for us. You guys on the East Coast, it's about mudding and tractor poles. I get that's it, right. you know. Right. So, but, but you know, that's another perfect analogy is if, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be driving what I'm driving. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you can't make, it, it's not practical for everybody and right. it's probably not practical for most um, there's some happy mediums for everybody here. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I think I'm at least okay. Admitting to myself is I just don't care about this stuff anymore. It doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah. It's important for a lot of people. It's just not that important to me. Um, yeah. and you know, but a lot of people, you know, who, who the only place they can prove themselves is some of these certain aspects, um get get fairly uh intense about the application of that being the most important thing and i get it you know i get a lot of stuff has been very important to me in my life that i've spent a a a ton of time and effort and banging my head into walls to convince other people um and some and you know a lot of it i was right some of it i wasn't so right i i believe me nobody was more the speed guy than me I said back then, you know, there was a reason I had a triple chamber compensator on my 45 thing looks like a locomotive, like a steam locomotive. Every time you shoot it or what comes out the muzzle of that gun straight up because I could shoot it flatter, better, faster with that kind of equipment on it. You know, I just, I kind of found in life that though that really didn't matter, you know, particularly like the shooting I got in, in that bar, all of a sudden, like none of that mattered. Yeah. anymore it became a lot of other things and you, you kind of just go it doesn't make the gun any less cool it doesn't make it a waste of time the time i spent learning to do that it just means that um i, I probably have enough depth now to go it's important but it's not the most important thing <laughs> i saw a picture on the internet today of a guy that had a glock 43 with a compensator on it yeah where's that the purpose of carrying a 43 is for deep concealment it's not but okay you do your and everything well well, we've been going for probably an hour and a half 
I think. Okay, because yeah. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be happy if it wasn't mine wasn't the longest one. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. You, you see, uh, Keepers and I went for a pretty good while. Um, we're, we've been going about an hour and a half, and so well, this is probably be a good place just to wrap this up. We can always do another segment later. Um, we're going to have to do another segment on why you're wrong about traditional double action. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> i'm not wrong wrong, but you're not not completely wrong we need to we need to do another one on uh, trigger system oh trust me i'm not i'm not there with you on double action only man i'd be i'd be doing that in a heartbeat if i could find one that that i like um (laughs) but uh uh, it's funny you know you mentioned the, the traditional double action some of the responses i've got to that little thought bubble I put out <laughs> where oh no no it works if you do the training yeah that's kind of the point that I made yeah. <laughs> thank you thank it's, you for proving what I said but yeah. it's sort of all of, you know to me it's all of them <laughs> yeah but yeah but you yeah. know well, well well like I said we need to do another one on triggers sure but then I might ruin my presentation for range master next there year so go. there's that yeah there you go uh, I always like to wrap up by saying was there anything on this topic that I didn't ask you about that you would like to address i think we covered most of it all right good thing you didn't ask that a half an hour ago <laughs> I, had a whole, but we, I think we just did a, i knew you were going to ask that so we got an extra half hour uh, uh, there you go there you go um so with that folks if you're enjoying the show please share it uh, on all of your social media or email list or whatever you you communicate with your friends and like-minded people on um, if you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, please. If you're listening to this on the podcast, please give it a good rating if, if you think it deserves it, et cetera. Um, that kind of stuff helps the, sh- the show grow. As like I said, I'm up to a little over $9 in revenue from this, from the podcast stream. So I'm going to be rolling in it. So, uh, you, you get another $10, you can take me for one of them Georgia <laughs> burgers that I apparently missing out on. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, I did introduce <laughs> you to hoe cakes. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No. So I trust you now. <laughs> yeah. Did introduce you to her cakes. And, yeah. uh, um, but folks, if, if you're uh, enjoying the show, please help it help it grow. And as long as there's interest in it, we'll keep it going. Uh, what I'm going to do with the revenue, if it ever, if it ever gets up enough, uh, <laughs> uh, I found a sound mixer that I want to get that will allow for a little better um, capability as far as production value is putting together episodes and now at the rate that we're going it's going to be a long time and there'll be four (laughs) generations of new sound mixers before that's over (laughs) but that's kind of where i'm going with any revenue that that uh that does come in from the show uh so with that daryl thank you for coming on tonight thanks for inviting me sure thing and uh um we'll see each other in person soon and then of course range tactical conference is coming up before we know it and um again thank you for coming on And everybody, I am that Weems guy. Thank you for your time.